Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Genesis 9 opens with the last of God's four speeches from the flood narrative. Actually, this one is more a cluster of sub-speeches than one massive speech. In verses 1 through 7, we hear echoes of Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. However, things are different. The world is not the same as it was at original creation. Things have been altered. Animals are now going to be fearful of human beings. We're not going to have that wonderful close relationship with all of the animal kingdom. And human beings are going to be omnivores. We're not just going to eat plants and fruit. We're also going to eat animals which is certainly going to contribute to us not having that great relationship. Blood, however, is sacred. Blood contains the life force of an animal. This will be further refined in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 12. But this not consuming the blood would mean not eating raw meat and not actually drinking blood. All life is valuable, but human life is most valuable in God's economy, because human beings are created in the image of God. The shedding of blood is a big deal, and shedding innocent blood requires justice. Justice, however, is God's alone to determine what is just. Um, And we are, it becomes really apparent that violence begets violence. The more we engage in violence, the more it becomes part of our nature, and we continue to do it, and it becomes a downward spiral. In verses 8 through 17, there are seven occurrences of the word covenant. God first made covenant with Noah back in chapter 6, verse 18. That former covenant was only about the flood, make an ark and I will save you. Now the covenant becomes more extensive. And the covenant is going to extend to Noah's descendants. Um, The covenant will be repeated with Abraham. But covenant is the means by which God relates to Israel's ancestors and by extension with all of Israel itself. Um, A covenant sign is something that is a reminder of the covenant obligations, and that is the rainbow in the case of this covenant. Um, Everlasting is a phrase describing um, the most important of the covenants in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that it's unconditional or that it is never ending, but to call something everlasting means that it's a very significant and important covenant. This was common in ancient Near Eastern um, bilateral contracts, um, that there's no fixed termination point. Um, but they will last for an unspecified length of time. In other words, this covenant will remain in effect, the covenant between us, until we make a new covenant between us. In verses 18 through 29, the children of Cain, as we look back, were innovators. Um, they thought of the music and metallurgy and um, cultivation, but now they're gone. 
they died off with the flood. All we have now are the descendants of Noah. Noah is going to be an innovator of sorts. Um, He's going to be a cultivator of grapes, and he's going to produce wine. And unfortunately, as can happen, Noah enjoys his product a little bit too much, and he gets drunk and passes out in his tent. Ham is not just being a voyeur. Um, He fails to protect the reputation and honor of his father. He fails to show him the respect that should be due. This is not a case of homosexuality or of incest. In this case, because very often uncovered the nakedness of someone is a euphemism for sexual activity. It's not here. Noah has passed out naked and Ham fails to just cover him up. The issue is respect versus disrespect. The other two brothers do show their father respect. Um, Ideally, Ham should have, when he found their father, simply covered him up and never mentioned it again to anybody. If he ever mentioned it to anybody, it would be directly to his father as he expresses concern over what had happened. Um, When Noah wakes up and finds out about this, he pronounces a curse. Now, Canaan is the son of Ham, and the Canaanites are the people that the Israelites are going to take the promised land away from. The children of Ham and Canaan are said that they are going to serve the children of the other brothers. Um, Respect will get you ahead if you respect and are good to people, but disrespect will always set you back. So this disrespect will mean that Ham's um, Ham's descendants will never really get ahead. They'll always be set back. In verse 28, we see that the flood becomes a new pivot point in history. Previously, we were told how old someone was when they had an heir and then how many years they lived after it. Now, Noah is dated from the flood. So we're told how long Noah lives after the flood. We also know he was 600 years old at the time he went into the ark. In chapter 10, we get a genealogical extension of the one we found back in chapter 9, verse 19. The names are sometimes individuals, sometimes it's the name of a place, and sometimes it's the name of a people group, a tribe or a clan. Um, But it really creates an ethnic map of the world at that time. Um, Let's talk a little bit about some of those. Japheth is the ancestor of the Coastland people. Um, By the way, Tarshish is where Jonah runs to flee away from his mission from God to get on a boat and keep trying to go. So they're on that coastland over by the Mediterranean. Ham, um, that we know is the brother of disrespect, is the ancestor of Cush, Egypt, and Canaan. Um, He's also an ancestor of a man named Nimrod. Nimrod is a mighty warrior and a hunter, the great-grandson of Noah, and extra-biblical traditions identify him as the ruler who commissions the Tower of Babel to be built. In First Chronicles 1.10, there's a reference to the land of Nimrod, um, and it becomes a synonym for the area of Assyria or Mesopotamia and a forerunner of Babylon. Um, take a look at Micah 5.6 as well. Um, Shinar is also a word for Mesopotamia. Some Jewish interpreters um, 
look at the phrase before the Lord um, as being like in your face. Um, the Jewish historian Philo um, felt this way, um, that basically Nimrod says, let's build a tower and to shove it in God's face. There, In the Talmud and in other rabbinical writings that date to the Middle Ages, Nimrod sets his will against God. He pronounces himself to be a god, and he is, is worshipped by the people. Um, when a portent in the stars um, reveal that Abraham, who's going to be the covenant one, is going to be born, um, and that Abraham would be the one who puts an end to all of this idolatry, particularly the worshiping of human beings, that Nimrod orders the killing of all the newborn babies to try to keep this from coming about. This probably may sound really familiar to you because there's the incident called the Massacre of the Innocents where Herod has all the male children two years of age and under killed after Jesus' birth. But Nimrod has come to be a synonym for an idiot to us. Um, opposing God is stupid. Um, the Tower of Babel made them all confused, it made them less intelligent. Um, in the Hebrew, um, the word means tyrant or rebel. Um, and the very first usage, by the way, of Nimrod that we get it as an idiot comes to us from a 1933 Bugs Bunny cartoon um, where Bugs Bunny calls Elmer Fudd um, a Nimrod or a tyrannical opposer. Ham is also the ancestor of the Assyrians, um, of Nineveh, and of the Philistines. So the three major groups that they have problems with, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and all of the Canaanites, all come out of, of Ham, this one ancestor. Um, through Canaan, um, Heth will become the father of the Hittites, the Jebusites, the, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and Sodom and Gomorrah all trace back to Ham. The descendants of Ham are all of their major enemies. So this incident of disrespecting their father becomes the reason they're at odds with these people and why they don't deserve the promised land. Shem um, has some ancestors, so he's one of the better sons as well. Heber um, is also the name Hebrew. So that's where we get the idea of the Hebrew people, and they live in the hill country of the east. Verse 19 shows us the borders, the boundaries of the Canaanite territory. And this then completes the very first portrait of the promised land. In verse 11, in chapter 11, the rebellious tendencies of the pre-flood humans have emerged from the ark in Noah's family. So all that rebellion was still in there, latent and ready to come out. The problem was not restricted to the Garden of Eden, and it couldn't be washed away with a flood. The problem is with humanity itself, and it's going to follow humanity wherever we go. In verses 1 through 9, we see a mention of one language. Now, in the ethnic map of the world that we've just looked at, it talks about each of those groups having their own language. So this episode of the Tower of Babel predates the full development of that ethnic map, but it made sense to give us the ethnic map after it's talked about the three sons and how they're divided. We then talked about their ancestors, and now we're going to say why they have different languages. 
Um, so you can find that reference to different languages in chapter 10, verses 5, 20, and 31. So the story is placed here for thematic reasons, not for chronological order. Out in the plain of Shinar, which we know is southern Mesopotamia, um, there's a city that is built. This is the city of Babylon, and they're going to build a tower. The tower is most likely a ziggurat, which is a a step-sided tower. It's like blocks stacked up. It says that it's made with bricks and bitumen, which were common building materials in ancient Babylon. And it talks about, we're going to make a name for ourselves. This isn't about building their reputation. This is about calling on the name of a God. We're going to make a God for ourselves. We're going to reach up and know God or become God and call that name. And that chief deity for the Babylonians is going to end up being Marduk. Um, They didn't even come close to building a tower to heaven, though, because Scripture tells us that God had to come down, come way down, in order to look at what they tried to build up. It's also another use of the plural. God says, let us go down. So it's another mention of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Babel, um, as the tower is called, the Hebrew word for confusion is Balel, B-A-L-E-L. And so the tower is named very close to that. It's kind of a combination of Babylon and Balal. So confusion in Babylon. Um, the people were united in their rebellion against God, their desire to climb up to the heavens and find another name for God. Unity is a powerful thing, and unity can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And so God says they've united to use their their unity, their collective power for evil. So we have to work to try to prevent that so that they have to seek us. They have to seek righteousness in order to truly be united and accomplish something um, that is thoroughly united. So they confuse their language. Um, They babble. They babble in Babylon at the Tower of Babel. Um, So it's it's a beautiful play on words there. In verses 10 through 26 of chapter 11, we now get Shem's descendants. Um, Some of these were already included in the genealogy that we saw back in chapter 10, verses 21 through 31. Um, It kind of repeats the pattern that from Adam to Noah, 10 generations, and there are also 10 names or 10 generations from Shem to Terah. Um, Remember, there were also 10 names in Cain's genealogy as well. Noah was the 10th generation of the entire human family. Abram, or Abraham, is going to be the 10th generation from Noah. Noah was the beginning of a new post-flood humanity. Abram is going to be the beginning of a new people, the beginning of Israel, the people of God. In verses 27 through 32, Um, This is the beginning of a portion that extends through the end of the book of Genesis. In this primeval history portion, God created the universe and established a covenant with a single righteous individual, Noah, as a means of salvation from the floodwaters, from uncreation. In Genesis chapters 12 through 50, God is going to create a nation a nation Israel, and make a covenant with another single righteous individual, Abraham, as a means of providing a solution to escape humanity's sinful dilemma. 
the tenth generation of humanity, Noah, brought comfort and salvation to a suffering cosmos. The tenth generation from Noah, or Abraham, receives covenant promises of land, descendants, and blessing. Um, A comforted cosmos then is able to support a redeemed people. So in these last verses, we get the genealogical background to the Abraham narrative that's going to take us forward. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Um, Nahor marries his niece, Milcah. Haran dies before their father, Terah. And we see that Sarai is barren. Um, Abram and Sarai are going to become Abraham and Sarah as they are chosen by God. They get a new name. Um, Terah takes his little tribe of people and he sets out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, but he never gets there. Um, I wonder how the stories that Terah tells to his son, Abram, influence Abraham's view of the promised land. I wonder if he talked it up, made it seem wonderful and beautiful, and then telling him the stories of the descendants of Ham that live in that land. They don't deserve it. Um, So when God chooses Abraham, he goes, we're going to take that really good land flowing with milk and honey because it's what we deserve as God's chosen people and not them. Um, I mentioned that Sarai was barren. Uh, Adam's descendants have been remarkably fertile until this point. Be fruitful and multiply, and it sounds like they did just that. The book has recorded birth after birth after birth, but now, as we hit Abram's line, um, if his wife is barren, then it looks like Abram's line is going to be brief. Um, This would make the listener of these stories wonder why God would choose Abram. How's he going to bless him? It's going to require another intervention of grace. And the story will focus on Abram, um, and we will wonder why God has closed her womb. But there's also going to be a pattern of barren women who were thought to have had some sort of deficiency. There's something wrong with them. There's some sin in their life that keeps them from being fruitful and fertile as they were commanded to be. And yet there are an awful number of barren women in the story of God's interaction with human beings here. So we have the creation of the world of the whole universe in Genesis 1 through 11. Now we're going to have the creation of a nation in chapters 12 through 50. And this is going to begin to build um, now that we have taken the 50,000 foot view of humanity and honed in on one man Now we're going to look at his descendants as that's going to grow out to a large number of people again. There have been six genealogies in this portion of Scripture. In chapter 2, verse 4, we have the generations of the heavens and earth. In 5.1, we have the descendants of Adam. In 6.9, the descendants of Noah. In 10.1, the descendants of Noah's sons. In 11.10, the descendants of Shem. And in 1127, the descendants of Terah. And so um, we're tracing the existence of all people through the acts of God, uh, the creation, uncreation, revision, work of God. And then the story is going to continue now with a traceable history. So that's Genesis 1 through 11, what we call primeval history.